From RTE Radio, I'm Neil O'Sheridan. This is Playback Daily. 21 million euro she donated, wait for it, to Scientology. All I knew was that, like, coming down the airport, I'm like... Big-nosed white people. Yeah! <laughs> <laughs> to have people shouting and screaming at them outside a place where they thought they were going to be safe is re-traumatising them. Coming up on this edition of Playback Daily, the Canadians who are more Irish than the Irish themselves, the ACL, the three-letter acronym that every sports person dreads, and the weightlifter hoping to join her brother at the next Olympics. That's all on the way over the next hour of the radio catch-up show, which Pitan and Bigara had no idea Darby O'Gill and the Little People was set in Newfoundland. The musings on the news, or musings, if you will, on this morning's Ryan Tuberty show began with a brief listen to a delightful reworking of the brilliant Succession theme tune. Quick mess- uh, mention, of, co- of course, of succession to the succession fans, other than to say it's nearly over. It's fine. It's really, really good. The sig tune to succession is great, but uh, I was sent the a guy called Harry Nicholson's version of it. Uh, he's, he decided to take to the piano his Steinway and said, this is, this is succession, the sig tune, as he sees it, but everyone just succeeds equally and has a really nice time. So it's a happy version. That's enough succession. Oh, but can you ever have enough succession? From strange imaginings of a happy Roy family to the Irish in Canada, from Ronan McCreevy's report in the Irish Times. Parts of the Canadian province of Newfoundland have a majority population, which is genetically Irish, going back almost 200 years. And, you know, Jamal was saying recently she was in a queue in Canada and heard what she was convinced was an Irish accent. And it was because even though the person speaking the uh, with an Irish accent was fully Canadian for the last three generations but the language has proven to be and the accent has proven to be so profoundly I'm going to play a clip in a minute so stand by has proven to be so profoundly indelible in, 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 on these people that it's still there so you could walk into a shop in Newfoundland and hear an accent and go what part of Wexford are you from and they'll say I'm not I have no idea what you're talking about so here's this about 25,000 Irish and English emigrants came to this province in the late 18th and early 19th century. So you can do the maths there. A lot of it was um, uh, rich fishing grounds off the coast, uh, geographical isolation then, economic setbacks. As a result, most of the descendants of people now living there are related to the original settlers. I'm sure there was famine connections too. Um, and we can talk about that another day in terms of uh, the impact the Irish had abroad uh, vis-a-vis accents and traditions and of course music Um, but the coastal towns on the loop of the Avalon Peninsula are part of what is known as the Irish Loop so these words continue many many people there have this discernible Irish accent though neither they nor their ancestors have lived in Ireland for generations and they did this detailed genetic analysis of people living in the province and this showed a significant proportion of the population can be traced back to settlers who primarily primarily migrated from southeast Ireland and southwest England about three centuries ago and they reckon that their Irish ancestry is, uh, is about 80% of the population and the people came mostly from Wexford, Waterford, Kilkenny because of their trade links with what was then a British colony and this is an example of a Newfoundlander by the name of Lizzie and um, if you if you hear a, tra- a trace of Irish in this, you'll know why. Jim Curran, yes, he was a fisherman. Yeah, there was um, the, the tilts, we used to call it that time. They all had a, um, you know, kind of a, a shed built. 
you know, and bunks in it, where you could sleep there in the night. And we'd all go out in the morning, we'd go up at six o'clock and milk the cows and feed the heads and everything and bake cream buns and go out for their dinners and cook their dinners out there. Isn't that extraordinary? I mean, it's, you know, do you ever know somebody who goes to America for two weeks and comes back going, all right, you know what I'm talking about? Like, you know, the, here's an accent that just refuses to go away. Wexford, Kilkenny, Waterford, they obviously have these strong, sustainable... Uh, accents that, that, that will travel and not th- not just across oceans but through generations. That's- and here I thought it was Transylvanians who travelled oceans of time for you. From Irish Newfoundlanders where's the Newfoundlandians? We may never know. To religious Bart Simpsons. Nancy Cartwright, for two points you know who she is straight away. The voice of Bart Simpson. And Nancy Cartwright is in the papers today because she was honoured for donating a lot of her fortune, 21 million euro, she donated, wait for it, to Scientology. So, yeah, the Church of Scientology. So if you, the more you award the church or donate, the, the bigger the trophy you get to say thank you for, for this achievement of giving us this extraordinary amount of money. And she's been doing the voice of Bart Simpson for 30 years and... The, the, she she got this uh, big, if you, you can see it online if you look it up, this big, shiny, rather garish-looking uh, trophy, Diamond. And she, what, what, in 2019, she won the Diamond Laureate with Honours status, which um, reflecting that she'd given them £17.5 And now she gets a bigger trophy because she's given more. And that's her thing. Um, and uh, she's a Scientologist and she's given away a lot of her fortune. Ay caramba, that's a lot of indulgences, right? But maybe it could buy you protection from demonic aerial attacks when you're out running. A, a guy going out for a run, and I think he's in Scotland, has these claw marks on his head because he was attacked by a buzzard. And apparently it's quite common out where he walks uh, because a lot of runners came out saying, yeah, I've been attacked by birds before. So you remember that scene in Hitchcock when the kids were running out of the school and the mad tippy headron and glasses breaking and blood and hair all over the place. Anyway, he said it it because I I don't know what it's like to be attacked by a buzzard and my and on in a head out for a walk or a run. It's a, it's like someone is punching you in the back of the head, and the talons are very sharp and they sunk into the back of his head. And he got a selection of about a collection of about six holes in his head as the so it came around properly hit him. The bird is notorious apparently having swooped on him twice. This is a bird with on a mission with a grudge against this. He must be annoying him. First time it happened, he, he says he, he, he thought that a truck wing mirror had hit the back of his head on his way past. That's such as the strength of a buzzard landing on the back of your head. I feel like we're maybe just breezing past what is a terrifying story. A man out running attacked by a buzzard for the second time? What on earth is happening in the world when we can just hear that sort of story and shrug and move on? And, well, that's the end of the musings on the news from this morning's Ryan Tuberty show. So I guess it's time to uh, move on, huh? The Ombudsman for Children, Niall Muldoon, spoke to Claire Byrne this morning as his report for 2022 is launched, highlighting the second busiest ever year for the service. The report is titled Falling Behind. We received over 1,800 uh, complaints last year, which is our second highest number of complaints ever since we set up the office, Claire. Um, issues around things like uh, education, justice, health, uh, TUSLA, 
Um, we had uh, also engaged with the UN Committee on the Rights of the Child last year and they oversaw Ireland and had concerns about child homelessness and poverty, mental health, inclusive education. So there's a range of areas in which our children are falling behind as a result of the, the government not incorporating the legislation for the UNCRC. Okay, and we'll talk about some of those issues, but I, I know you've mm. been listening to what's been going on this morning. We see further anti-immigration protests happening over the last few days in Dublin as well. And in previous protests, children were in accommodation where protesters were outside. Now, how concerned are you about children being caught up in the immigration system and its weaknesses? Well, I think I mean, from our, our point of view, protests are obviously are, are, are appropriate for people the right to do that but any any protest in that sort of scenario needs to be kept away from the children these children are coming to our country for safety and security haven't been traumatized by war or some other major event that that is uh, life-threatening to have people shouting and screaming at them outside a place where they thought they were going to be safe is re-traumatizing them so I think the the protest can still make the same point but well away from those sort of accommodations that where children are, are being kept um, and again I think we have to recognize that some of the some of the protests have are more in relation to the the lack of government services for homeless people people in general and accommodation and housing and affordable, social affordable housing. So people have a point to be made. But I think the the young children and unaccompanied minors who have been coming to our country for safety are not the people who need to be the target of that mm-hmm. anger. There's another issue as well uh, in that it has been claimed that the state treats children who come here from Ukraine and children who are seeking international protection from other countries, that they treat those groups differently when they arrive here. Well, I think what we've engaged with the government is what we we praise the government for how they've treated the, the children and the families coming from Ukraine. They found a system that that works with them very quickly, that gets them uh, moved on very fast into accommodation, gets the PPS number, gets them the right to work. That's I think from our point of view that's excellent. But we want to recognise the fact that all children should be treated equally when they come to Ireland. So if we found a system that works well, we need to make sure that that's available to all the children who come here and all the families that that, that mm-hmm. need the support for exactly the same reasons. You mentioned education on on your list of issues where you've had to um, deal with people. These complaints coming into your office, a record number in 2022. And a third of complaints were based around education. And I think one case study in the report will shock people. The case of Ashling Nile, who was subject to bullying with an element of sexual abuse by another student in her secondary school. Talk us through the, the failings, the serious failings and how the school dealt with that issue. Yeah, I think, I mean, again, we one of the concerns we've had for many years is that bullying is too wide a too wide a term. It doesn't break down. There's there's many types of bullying, uh, sexual bullying, uh, racism, homophobia, a range of others. But in this case, Ashling suffered sexually inappropriate behaviour. She reported it. The, the, deal, the school dealt with it as a bullying issue, not as a sexual uh, concern or a sexual risk uh, issue. They didn't include TUSLA, they didn't talk to the guards, they didn't bring in their child protection policies. They, In fact, they asked Ashling to engage in restorative justice system in which they, she sort of essentially shake hands and be friends again with this individual. That was very uncomfortable for her and something she didn't want to do. Ultimately, the, the, the young person that she was alleging was actually expelled, but then the bullying continued afterwards because their friends started bullying Ashling as well. So the, the, the way it was dealt with by the school was very, very inappropriate and, and left Ashling with a lot of trauma. Um, and again, it's from our point of view, we, when we investigated, the school admitted this, they've changed their policies, they, they acknowledge they will do something different the next time. But it's 
we've seen a number of these cases coming through more recently in the last couple of years and we've engaged with the Department of Education about helping schools in this situation and we've also asked TUSLA to take a look at how they can support schools and principals when these sexual actions are happening because people are much more aware since the Me Too movement of their personal space, of the sexual behaviour of, of others and the intimidation that comes with it. So it's it really is a concerning case study but I think hopefully it's something that will start to make sure that the light is shone and things will change. Is there any commitment, though, from the department that, to have standardised national policies on, on issues like this? Yes, they have moved forward. They've, they updated their, their anti-bullying policies from 2013. They've, there was a thing called Canaltus, which was uh, launched by the minister in December, and they've committed to gathering data on what type of bullying is happening around the country. So it could be homophobia, it could be racism, it could be sectarianism, it could be body shaming, it could be transphobia, it could be sexual uh, bullying. So at least now we will gather the data, which in turn should allow for the proper support from for the, the schools to, to deal with these different individual cases. Now, school places for children with um, special educational needs, and we know that this was a huge problem for so many families last year. You have serious concerns in this regard, the assessment of needs first. Yeah, I mean, the assessment of needs is something we've been highlighting for many, many years. We, we did a big report, which we launched in the, in the Iraqis in 2020, highlighting the, that uh, it's a children's rights issue and children need to be uh, provided with the opportunity to get their needs met. This assessment needs to be done in a, in a timely manner. And it also needs to lead to services, not just to, at the moment we have a legal commitment to do the assessment, but not to follow up with the services that are recommended. So we're pushing for that again. Um, the disability services have not come to up to scratch in that yet. Um, that's something that needs to be pushed. And then in turn, the, the places for children in schools. Again, last year we, we uh, reported through the Plan for Places report that there was a, a huge backlog of children who, with special education needs who didn't have school places. There was a phenomenal flurry of activity around May this time last year when we published this report and all the school, all the children seemed to get a place in September, most of them. Mm-hmm. We hoped that by November, December, the NCSE would be in a position to say, right, all the places for September 23 are sorted. But we have not got that commitment to this point yet. So we're still concerned that maybe children uh, with special education needs who will not have places in September and that's really due to a lack of, of forward planning which again shows that we're falling behind on the rights of children. Depressing but sadly not surprising news from the Ombudsman for Children on this morning's Today with Claire Byrne. Weightlifter Tammy Nguyen joined Ray Darcy in studio this afternoon to talk about moving from Vietnam to Ireland and her hopes of representing Ireland in the Olympics next year. My dad and myself came over here to Ireland first and then my brother and my mum stayed over in Vietnam and they followed us over, I think, about two years after. Right. Yeah. yeah. And why Ireland? To be honest, I don't really know why my dad just decided so we just had to follow that was it I don't I don't really know like why specifically this country yeah but uh, yeah so you're six or seven and you're coming to a completely different country yes it was very daunting at the start yeah yeah it was the only time I remember stepping into the airport and I'm like why is everyone's snow so big (laughs) (laughs) I'm so sorry to say that but I was like and why is Aaron so, like, white? <laughs> because I'm so Asian and yes. our nose are flat. Yeah. And, like, obviously the skin colour is different, so I didn't know where I was going. Yeah. 
All I knew was that, like coming down the airport, I'm like big nosed white people. Yeah. <laughs> Am I allowed to say no, that? No, you're fine. It's a, yeah. it's a fact. It's That's a fact. the only thing I remembered was coming down to the airport. I'm like, and then everyone's so tall. Yes. So, so tall. And I'm so small. What height are you? Um, Four foot ten about. Right. Yeah. So yeah. I was told I'm a midget. No, you're not, are you? Yeah. Um, if you're under five. challenged, I think is what they say now, isn't it? Is it? Yeah. 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 Uh, if you're under five foot, then you're countered at, right. as a midget. Right. Vertically so. challenged. Yeah. <laughs> They don't use the midget word anymore, I think. Sorry. <laughs> yeah. uh, so so um, so you land here with your dad and your, yeah. your mum uh, and your brother are still back in Vietnam. Yeah. So how long were you here with your dad on your own? Um, it was about two years. I think so. About two years before my mum came over, yeah. Right, okay. Yeah. That, that must have been a tough time for you. Um, it is very tough and it's a, probably a very touchy subject, but I think I'm kind of over that part now. But yeah, it was a really, really tough time for us. Mm. Yeah. Uh, and how was your English? Oh, I didn't have any English. Right. Yeah, like it was, um, obviously coming to a new country, uh, new language, uh, obviously a new culture, didn't know anything. Um, so I had to learn everything from the beginning, like yes. from scratch. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. so you were in a primary school with no English? Yeah. Right. Yeah. How did that go for you? Um, well, so far I remember I didn't have a lot of friends because they were like, who's this girl? Back then, like a, a multicultural thing is not really the the a big thing back then. Yeah. Now it is. And they're kind of, it's, it's, it's more important now, but back then not yes. really. And I didn't really make any friends back then. And I was kind of mostly kind of by myself or sometimes with somebody who was from another country. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Ireland has changed so much in those oh, 20 absolutely. years, hasn't it? Yeah, it has yeah. changed for the better. A lot. Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. So you were delighted to see your mom when she arrived. Of oh, course, absolutely. Um yeah, when my mom arrived then, what we spoke earlier on, um everything just felt back to normal. Yeah. 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 What do your parents do? Um my parents owns a Chinese called Clare Hall Chinese in Clare Hall. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> <Duh>. <laughs> um so they opened that Back in 2012. Right. And they have been working since there every okay. day. Yeah. Now, the weightlifting. Yes. If you were in a lineup of people, you probably wouldn't pick you out as a weightlifter. Do you not think so? No. Do you know what? Yeah, I was standing outside and I was speaking to Joe and he's like the manager for the orchestra. The orchestra, yeah, yeah, tall Joe. Yeah, and he was like, who are you? I'm like, um, <laughs> and I had my foot on the, the barbell. Yeah. And he was like, is that a barbell or is it like a footstool? And I was like, oh no, sorry, this is a barbell. And he was like, what do you do? I'm like, I do weightlifting. He's like, what? Show me. So I was doing weightlifting. <laughs> that was for Joe, yeah. the manager of the orchestra, yeah. right? There you go. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Correct. <laughs> so funny. Uh, so yeah. random. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So how yeah. did you get into it? Um, so I started doing... Uh, Going to the gym was like a little bit and what do I do? Yeah, I was going to the gym when I was like 15 and I was had an interest in sports. And then um, I seen this girl on Instagram and she was just like so jacked, like she was just ripped. So which? Jacked. As jacked. If, like ripped. Like, right. Really like. Muscly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 So ripped. I, right. yeah. Okay. <laughs> built. Yeah, built. Okay. These and are all then, new words of me. Yeah. Jacked. Built. 
You look so jacked. Right, okay, fine. Sorry about <laughs> No, 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 it's good. It's good. It's and good. then uh, I texted her and I asked her, what did she do? And she said she, do, uh, she did CrossFit. Right. And then I joined a CrossFit gym. So the kind of about the first week I joined a CrossFit gym, they said to me like, like, like you're really good at Olympic weightlifting. I'm like, hey, what's that? Like, you know, like, hey, what's this? And then um, he said, you should do like a weightlifting competition further down the line. And I was just like, yeah, okay, whatever. Like, same thing. Right. Yeah, and then I just did my first competition. And that's how it came about. Right. Yeah. And you've been doing it ever since. That's 10 years you're into it now, Um. Yes, yeah, so I compete for a couple of years, about two, uh, two years. And then I took a massive gap. Your children? Yes, and yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Two yeah. children. Yeah, 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 yeah and yeah. that, yeah. and yeah. Uh, But I was still training in between, yeah. yeah. So I came back now to do proper, like, uh, compete. Okay, and the, your impetus, your reason to get back into it was your brother, your little brother. Impetus. Impetus, the reason, you know. Oh, the, right, the, okay. The, the reason. Sorry, I don't know that one. <laughs> yeah, yeah, okay, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. So you're, you're sitting down watching the telly. Yes, correct. Right, which yes. Olympics was it? Uh, it was Tokyo. Right. Uh, he, so one of my ever goals is to qualify for the Olympics with my brother. Right. And I've set that back in an article in 2015. And uh, obviously I went and pursued into business and had kids and he went and pursued into his dreams. So he walked out of the opening ceremony and I had a baby in my hands. Right. And I says, oh, I don't like this feeling. What's his sport? He does badminton. Nat. Yes. Nat what is age is he? Name. He is 22. So he represented Ireland at the Tokyo yes, Olympics. Yes. Wow. Yes. That was his first Olympic. Yeah. And uh, he has a couple more to go. Yes. Yeah. And you would like to be Qual- walking out with him in Paris yeah. My next goal year. is to walk out of that opening ceremony with my brother. Yeah. Yeah. You're one of the best weightlifters in the country, but the standard you say, this is your words, not mine, isn't very high in this country for weightlifters. We're, we're not known as a weightlifting country. Yes, correct. Right. Okay. Yes. Um, so like weightlifting is, um, to Sport Ireland, weightlifting is known as an underdevelopment sport, but I don't believe it is now. Because um, there are so many other athletes and the like even people training, like the membership and everything like that has gone up in weightlifting. So, you know, like it's not the standards in Ireland here. Like people have reached that standard now. Okay. So we can. So there's growing interest in this. Yes, correct. A lot more people going to gyms. A lot more people lifting heavy weights. So And social media as well is very big right right now. Okay. Yeah. So... this may not mean anything to our listeners, but but yeah. but I suppose the best way to impress upon them how good you are is <laughs> oh you, you lift twice your weight. Yeah, yeah, I, yeah, yeah. I think so. Yeah, I yeah, I did, I did. What's 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 that? What is that? Uh, I lifted ninety eight kilos in the clean and jerk. Right. And seventy five snatch. So you don't even know what that is, don't you? Not? No. I think I do. The the, the, the snatch is where you, you snatch it off the ground. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So and, and then the yeah. clean and jerk is where you have it. You have it on your resting on your shoulders and you push it up. Yes, correct. See, correct. Yeah, 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 yeah. You know briefly about it, which is yeah, good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Thanks, more thanks, than more yeah, more than, than most people. people. Yes, yeah, yeah, yes, yeah. I was yeah. paying attention when yeah. the Olympics were on. <laughs> it's a fascinating sport to watch. Yeah, of course. Like it's. Um, it's very like explosive. It's yeah. fast. Yeah. You need a lot of strength and overall like strength power, and it's just you and the bar. Yeah, and which time do you put into it? Um, 
at the moment right now, well, I'm going training after this. So today I've put in about four hours, five hours. What? Two in the morning. And then I went to home, I rest, I ate, had a meeting and then in here and then going back to training after this. So four or five hours a day. Yes, correct. Yeah. Tammy Ngoyen, prospective Irish Olympian weightlifter, talking to Ray Darcy this afternoon. The singer Steo Wall joined Ryan Tuberty this morning with a harrowing tale about his addiction when he was younger, his detention in a juvenile facility and his subsequent imprisonment in Mount Joy. January 2004. Yeah. You were nearly out. Yeah. It's coming to the end. Yeah. I had, what, three months to go? Yeah. And an event that uh, changed your life and that of somebody else entirely uh, happened. Uh, what can you tell us about that experience that moment yeah um you were 23 yeah well like i say it was i was still caught in the grip of addiction Ryan. you know and it was a you know i I am very conscious that you know some some members of this man's family might be listening so i'll try and talk about it as best i can um it was just a, a dispute between myself and himself over drugs, you know. And when you're when you're inside, you know, knives and stuff, everyone's kind of carrying uh, uh, for for protection and stuff. Um, and so it was just a fight that got really out of hand. Alan Green, yeah, thirty years old, yeah. You got stabbed. He got stabbed. Yeah. And then. And and he, well, I I didn't know it at the time. Um, so so the officers come and it's been mayhem. So uh, so everyone gets locked into their cells, you know. Um, and a search begins, you know, cell by cell. They search for weapons, the, weapons, and and the other me essentially they're searching for the other culprit of the fight. And so when they found me um, bleeding in the cell, they 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 took me out and down into a basement area of the prison and then from there I went to the Mata hospital to receive treatment um, and that's when I found out that that chap had passed away How did you react or how did you feel? Um, I, I, I was just I suppose I was just numb like you know um, because I, like I Obviously, I didn't mean for it to happen. Like you know, did you care at the time? Yeah, yeah. No, I, I, look, were you I, two off your face? That's what I'm trying to figure out. Were no, you, you see, I was probably, I was probably sober at that time. Were you? You so you were, you were capable of of emotion and reaction. Yeah, yeah. You know, to an extent, because drugs kind of block all that out as well. Um, and so, you know, obviously, I, I. I was very like kind of remorseful and stuff, but. I just delved deeper then into the addiction after that, like, you know, um, and, and got lost further in it. Um, and that continued uh, up until I was sentenced for the crime, you know. Um, what, what were you sentenced to? What what was the length of the sentence? Uh, so it was, uh, I was sentenced for manslaughter. Mm-hmm. Um, and the length of the sentence was six years. Um, 
How much of the six years did you serve? All of it. Every single day? Yeah, every day, yeah. Um, yeah. Talk to me about um, what, how you feel about Alan Green's family maybe listening this morning. Um, well, I'm just like, you know, like I've brought a lot of uh, trauma and, and shame and stuff upon them, you know, so... Um, you know, I, I'm just very mindful of that, you know, um, that of the hurts that I've caused them and probably their community as well, like, you know, um, so I don't know, I just... <clears throat> Do you want to say anything to them? Um, I, I do, I do, but I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't say it live on air. It would have to be, I'd have to look the people in the eye, like, you know, if it was the chance ever arose. Um, you know, and I—that's when I'd express, you know, me, me remorse and stuff. Um, Would you like for that to happen? Um, I'm very open to it. You know, at the time of sentencing, uh, the judge at the time was uh, at a conference, and and it was around restorative justices, mm-hmm. and so. I, I, at that time, it would have been the first case in the history of the state that restorative justices would have been used in the case. This is where the, the victim's family meet the perpetrator of the crime. Yeah. And they eyeball each other. Yeah. And have a conversation to try and figure out what the hell happened. Yeah. Uh, as you say, remorse might be expressed and anger might be expressed, but yeah, it might be a helpful thing for, for all parties. Um, and they turned down that they did and like look can you blame the people like I, I wouldn't I wouldn't have done it if the tables were turned you know at the time um, look it's 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 nearly 20 years later but I, I, I still carry it I still have the you know the shame of it the 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 guilt of it and, and it doesn't go away like you know um, and so I, I, I would be open to I don't know any possibility at this stage like you know and the person who who did that you then mm-hmm. feels to me like possibly a very different person to the one I'm sitting talking to today yeah he he, he no longer exists you're, you're even referring to him as somebody else yeah that, that like that that so after I got sentenced for that like I said I was you know I'd gotten out of prison on bail and that as you said like my sentence came to an end and mm-hmm. I got out on bail for this crime but I was so messed up that I just I was so bad on the drugs and in within that space of time then I I was coming home from a party with f- my sister my 18 year old sister and three other people in a car one night we were all drunk and you know and, and we had a crash uh, we, we had a head on collision with another car and I lost my sister I'm in, sorry, in that yeah. at the time. And so that, coupled with what had happened, I just saw oblivion. So when I got sentenced for the crime mm. and I was still in back in Mount Joy and running amok and getting drugs, and it just so happened that one night, I, and I was seeking help at this time, like I was asking for detoxes and the, the prison was providing it, but sure, every time I detoxed, more drugs would come in. Like it, was just, it was just that cycle, detox drugs, detox drugs. Um, but so I was looking to get out of Mount Joy and I kept asking the governors, look, I, I need to get out here. Like, I can't get clean. And there's a medical wing of Mount Joy 
where you can go and detox and drugs aren't as prevalent and from there you go to a tra the training unit it's mm. called which is another section of the compound and that's uh, kind of a semi-open prison where you can kind of readjust to society you have the key to your cell and you can come and go as you please um, and I just wasn't getting any joy um, from the governors and one night I was kind of not arguing but I was getting heated with an officer because I needed to get from my wing to another wing mm. um, for drugs if I'm being honest and and the officer that I cleaned on in the in St. Patrick's institution uh, years earlier had rose up through the prison ranks and he was standing outside my cell when I came back around Mr. McHugh's his name right and he said, Stephen, what is going on with you? Like, you look in bits. So I just told him. I told him what was happening. I said, Mr. McHugh, I can't get clean. I have tried. So, look, I need to get out of here or I'm going to die in here. Um, I've been asking for the medical unit like four or five times. They won't give it to me. He said, right, leave it with me. And the next morning at eight o'clock, the door opened and the officer said, well, you pack your kit, you're going to the medical unit. And that was the beginning, you know, I've been thinking of my story a lot recently, like of mm. the forks on the road, you know, mm. first time someone offered you drugs and you said, yeah, that's a fork, where it could have went a different direction. And so that that officer doesn't know it, you know. Changed but, everything. But that, that was that was, the, that was a fork where yeah. my, this, the journey to getting clean, I detoxed, I, I became involved in school and art and all of that kind of stuff. Therapy. Oh yeah, so I done like alternative to violence uh, programs, and as a part of the detox, you uh, uh, counselling and therapy is uh, is part of it. You see, the thing about it, Ryan, is that all the services are available mm. inside, but you have to seek them. Steel Wall talking very candidly to Ryan Tuberty this morning. Orla Sharkey, partner at Callan Tansy Solicitors, joined Claire Byrne this morning to discuss maintenance payments and how they work. Maintenance is essentially a payment made by one party to the other party in relation to dependent children. So you can have maintenance in relation to dependent children and also spousal maintenance, which is specific to one spouse. So one spouse may be ordered to pay maintenance to the other spouse in order to assist them financially. Mm -hmm. And uh, who decides what the maintenance payment is? There's no set uh, maintenance figure, as it were, or no set amount that's ordered. Maintenance is largely assessed by a court in terms of the financial needs of the person applying for maintenance um, and the financial means of the person paying maintenance. So basically what happens is if the parties can't agree maintenance between themselves, it will go before a court and you can apply in the district court for maintenance or the circuit court or high court. Now, usually an application in the district court Clare is um, made in relation to uh, most people would make their application in the district court. It's kind of your ordinary working person that has um, a reasonable uh, income and the district court can order maintenance up to €150 Euro per child. Um, now if you have greater means uh, available to the parties then the application would be made in the circuit court or high court and uh, those courts can order maintenance in excess of 
150 euro per child upwards and there's no limit as to what a court can order mm -hmm. in relation to the maintenance. But what would happen in any maintenance application is that the parties would go before the court. There would be an exchange of financial information. So a statement of means would be prepared and that would basically set out what a party's income is and what their expenses are. And those are exchanged between the parties and then the judge assesses what is a reasonable sum of maintenance that should be paid depending on the means of each party. Okay, just to throw a spanner in the works, let's say there are no children and the marriage has broken down, but throughout the marriage, one member of the couple was not working. Is, does the court view that person as being able to work and provide for their own needs or does the working partner have to pay maintenance to that person? So spousal maintenance would arise in that situation. So if, if one party has stayed at home um, on a continuous basis throughout the relationship, they would be entitled to maintenance. But that's not to say that a court wouldn't adopt the view of uh, if the person is capable of obtaining employment. So if, for example, they're not under a disability and there is no valid reason as to why they're not working, a court could and would say um, that that person needs to look at what op options might be available to them in terms of employment and what steps have they taken to obtain employment. And in that situation, what a court may do is order interim maintenance, which would be a temporary maintenance order. And that would allow the person obtain employment um, and improve their position financially and return to the workforce, as it were, or start in the workforce. And then the maintenance would cease at a certain point. Now, Orla, at the moment, we all know there are significant cost of living pressures and orders might have been agreed years ago before the costs went up. So how does inflation impact on maintenance payments? Can they be reviewed? Yes, maintenance can always be reviewed because the nature of maintenance, maintenance is, is that it's a financial payment in relation to a spouse or a dependent child um, and children's needs are changing on a daily basis and children are expensive by their very nature and in those circumstances you can always look to review the maintenance. So if for example you go before the court this year and you're working and you have a good income, you may get a lower maintenance payment. Say for example in five years time your employment prospects have been affected, perhaps you've been reduced, uh, you've been put on reduced hours and in those circumstances your requirement for maintenance would be greater and you can go back to the court and say that your circumstances have changed, this is your financial position now and you're asking the court to look at the maintenance and vary the maintenance order upwards taking into account your change in circumstances. Mm -hmm. And Orla, I know you're often asked if fathers have to pay maintenance but that's not always the case, is it? No, maintenance is not gender specific. Um, mother or father can be directed to pay maintenance. It really is a financial assessment uh, of the monies available and the financial needs of a party and the dependent children. So the court can order maintenance to be paid by mother or father. Can the maintenance be paid directly to the child? Let's say we're talking about an older child. Usually the maintenance is paid to the person who has a day-to-day -day care and control of the child. Um, but as the child gets older, so say, for example, maintenance and the obligation to pay maintenance lasts until a child is 18 or 23 years of age if they're in full-time education. So depending on the circumstance of the case, a court could direct that a child, for example, in third-level college should get the maintenance payment paid directly to them. Mm -hmm. Do they have to go to the court to sort that out or can that be done it can in be, local uh, agreement? It can be agreed between the parties, clear if that's possible or alternatively through mediation and if agreement can't be reached, well then it, it can proceed through the courts. Mm -hmm. I know you gave us an example of some of the figures and the average amounts paid, but how is that ultimately calculated? 
it goes back to the statement of means. So each party will file a statement of means which clearly sets out what the person's income is and what the expenses are. And those expenses that are listed would incorporate the expenses in relation to the dependent children. So say, for example, their extracurricular activities, um, optical expenses, dental expenses, medical expenses, exactly what all of those expenses are in relation to the children. And then the court will assess those uh, financial needs against the income of the applying uh, party and then look at the income of the person that's been asked to pay the maintenance. And that's how the court then will assess what is the appropriate figure that should be paid. Mm -hmm. Quite often it can be the case that um, parties agree maintenance um, and they may agree a set figure per week or per month. And then they may also agree that um, dental, educational, optical and medical expenses are shared on a 50-50 basis between the parties. Okay, and the district court, as you said, the maximum maintenance amount is €150 per child per week. Now, if either partner wants more than that or feels they need more than that, they have to go to a higher court. Is that how it works? That's right. If if €150 per week per child maintenance is not the appropriate figure to cover the expenses of um, that parent and the children, in those circumstances, you would apply to the circuit court or the high court for maintenance. And what happens to the child benefit in all of this? Usually, I, I suppose the typical scenario in Ireland is that the children's allowance um, is paid directly to um, the uh, parent who has day-to-day care and control of the children. That is the person that's entitled to, to receive the children's allowance. So whoever has the children on a full-time basis generally takes the, the children's allowance. But it's taken into consideration when calculating maintenance, is it? Absolutely. It's included on the statement of means as an item of income and it's considered by the court when assessing maintenance. That's Orla Sharkey, partner at Callantanzi Solicitors, talking about maintenance payments on this morning's Today with Claire Byrne. Neville Walter Brown was the victim of some commoner garden racism in Dublin city centre last weekend, as he told Cullum O'Mungan on this afternoon's Liveline. Let's take it from the point that you walk across the threshold of this pub and you look around. There aren't many people in the pub you walk into. I mean, roughly how many people would you say were there? A maximum, well, uh, we're looking about seven max, I think, right. around the seven, eight people. So you didn't excluding take... The, it, excluding it, it, the two people behind the bar. I don't count them as, as part of the, the drinking crowd. You know what I mean? So it didn't take you long to attract the barman's attention? No, we walked straight straight into the into the into into the establishment, I walk straight to the bomb and I say, "Good afternoon. Uh, uh, will you pull us a, a black one and a brown one, please?" And I wrote the name, the the products. You know what I'm no, talking a, about. A pint and, of stout and a, and, 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 a, and a short one of whiskey. Yeah, whatever. Yeah, and I, he said to me, uh, he looked at down, he looked over to me, said he looked at me, he said, "Now, well, I only serve locals." And I said to him, "How local should I be to be served?" And he said to me, hey, you don't be funny, I only serve locals. I said, well, I'm local enough, I'm here, those are many years, how many years must I be here to be local? You know, and he just said to me, well, that's the way I am. And then then I, I went one octave higher <laughs> with my voice and I said, this is exactly what I've experienced all my life back home in South Africa, Cape Town. And now I'm here in, this, in, in the first world country and I'm getting this treatment. And what did, he, said, say, what, what, what did he say back to you? He just said to me, "Well, that's that's my decision, and um, you don't you don't question me." I said to him, "But your place isn't marked." I said, "If it was a golf club, would say members only, I would walk past, or it would have said outside, locals only." But outside, it says, "This is the name of the the, the establishment," and um, 
no, well, there's nothing else on it. And the only thing there is names. What do you sell inside? And some bit of ad, 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 you know, a bit of ad, um, ad, uh, stuff there on the wall. That's all, but nothing else. I said, I would accept. I would accept it if it. I know in those years in South Africa they used to have a, a thing across the door. It says uh, something about permission only. You know, notice or notice of the owner, which will you allow allow you in or out? Something like that. I can't remember some what what. What do you right, but they, do you they, right? they 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 made it clear that there was discrimination on the basis of apartheid and on in in establishments in South Africa, whether that was shops, toilets, oh, bars, yes. oh, no, restaurants. No, no. You, you you knew you shouldn't go in there. You knew even in the post office, you knew you if you go back to South Africa, whoever goes back to South Africa, and they go to the railway stations. On the well, if you look, if you go on the railway station, all the railway stations will have two subways. One was for the whites. One was for the blacks. The same applies to the toilets. One side was for the whites instead of just build, build one, you know, female and male. No, it was, there was always four toilets. Two, two, for the, two for the whites, male and female. Two for the blacks, uh, male and female. And that was straight down. We knew, as 221 said, we knew what was coming down the road when apartheid was alive, you know, and well. But now, I mean, in a first world country, and I'm, I'm not, I mean, you can, I mean, you can bar me, it's your business, fine, but when it's in, uh, and this is the argument, my friends. It, well, I mean, it's, 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 not, it's, it's actually, it's, it's not his business because we have the Equal Status Act there, which is specifically oh. there to protect people, not to face discrimination and refusal of service oh. on the basis of ethnicity or, or, or anything else or disability or family status, gender, membership of the mm-hmm. travellers community, religion, sexual orientation, age. Okay. So, so there, there are protections there. But uh, as you say, if if he wants to try and enforce a policy like this, at least gi- give people a clear signal that this is what they would face were they to come through that yes. door and, 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 try, and try his look perhaps uh, in a court of law. But do you mind me asking, you were with somebody else when, when, uh, when yes. you went into the pub. Uh, yes. And the funny part, my friend just on, on Thursday, he said to me, he, 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 I don't know, he walked over a pavement or something and he and he limped his, his ankle and he was on two crutches, you know, those little aluminium crutches. He was limping in and, and I, this guy must have thought this guy is drunk, but you could see, you know, his ankle was a bit iffy. And this guy just said no. And my friend said to me, oh, can I just go for a leak? And he said, no, locals only. So I said to him, I still made a joke. I said to my friend, are you local, boy? You use you've got. Uh, I mean, it's a fun joke. I said to him, "You've got your own pants." Yes, I said. Now, well, do your thing in your pants. It's yours. <laughs> and we turned around and we walked away. We went across the road, walked inside there. I said to him, my friend, "I know this place uh, fairly well. We always sometimes just go around the corner. There's a place you can go for a leak there. The toilet and, the, and it's also uh, designed for uh, you know people with wheelchairs and stuff. So, and then I walked to the bomb and I said to him the same. I said. Two in bomb is no problem. When my friend came back, bomb was on the drink. table. And, and we you had you... to drink. And, and, and the funny part on and that bar, we still were running a tab. We didn't drink, you know, till the, the cows came home, but we had, I think, two or three. But he still ran a tab on us and he didn't even know us. We were sitting one side. And Neville, you're and black. We were, we were... Is your friend who you were drinking with black as well? No, he's a, he was a white guy. His, his surname is Connor. <laughs> I mean, his name is Connor. Right. Funny enough, he, he's a white guy, and he said to me, "Oh, this is, this is funny." He, he was quite surprised. Oh, I don't know what's going on here. 
but okay, let's walk out, you know, and just not. Well, can, can, I, can, I, can, I, can I take you back before the tab has been run and you're happily drinking three pints and whatever else in, in, in the place across the road? Did any of the customers react when you were refused service? No, did anyone no. overhear it? Did, they, did anyone look yes, up at the bar in, when in, all in this the, was going on? In the first pub, yes, where we went. Yeah, no, they, they all looked at us. And then when I went the octave higher about this, you know, I'm from South Africa, this is what I experienced all my life. Now I'm here in this country. <laughs> Thank you very much, sir. Goodbye. And let's just walk out of here. But no customer said, no customer walked yeah, out in solidarity. Nobody, nobody said to the barman, give him a pint. No, no, no. Nobody was up for my defense. I was just, uh, but actually, you see, when he carried on that, I just said, I just, I just a second. I just said, no. Hello? Hello? Yeah, hi, I'm listening to you, Neville. I, I just said, let's walk out of here. You know, just turn around, let's walk out of here. And I said, I know there's a place across the road on the other corner. Let's go there. And we went there. And when we spent, what, was it 30 euros? What we spent there? Or what? I mean, 30 euros in any man's language is a lot of money. Any 30 euros, 30 dollars that to be spent on a joint. And I mean, you get 300 people walking in with a 30 dollars sale, spending 30 dollars. That's a, quite a pretty penny for the day that you're making. So, I, I, I just, don't know. Just when I was telling you there about the Equal Status Act, that seemed to come as a surprise to you. Do, do you think you'd pursue anything under that to the Workplace Relations Commission and, and, and do anything no. about your experience on Saturday? Or, or a Sunday was a Sunday. No, or no, Sunday, I beg no, your pardon, I won't, I won't, Sunday. I no, I won't, I won't do a legal thing against it, you know, uh, because I'm frequently in Dublin weekends um, or whenever I do get to Dublin. And... Um, and when I said that to my other three friends, they said, oh, let's go there Saturday. <laughs> because this one guy, he is very vocal. I said, no, no leave, it, leave the damn thing. We'll, we'll, we'll just leave it alone. Let, let. But what really got hold of me yesterday while I was working, I said to myself, you know, I go to such a lot of customers. I'm, you know, I won't name them. You know, it's just quite a lot of customers which I do go to on a daily basis. And never did I experience that. I do go to a lot of customers frequently, and we, you know, that, that normal fl- slagging, hey, you, what are you doing here? And blah, blah. And then, ah, you know, and blah, blah. And they come inside, have a cup of tea. And we sit down, we have a joke, or we talk rugby, or, well, I'm a soccer, or whatever we talk about, and life. And then we just do my business, and I walk away and drive away. You know, next week when I get there again, ah, how are you, week? Then they will tell me something about a car or something. And then we'll just, that's the normal crack that I have with a lot of customers with my relationship. But this took me by surprise, and that really got me off yesterday. Or the other word I would use, I said to my one friend, I was so cross I could even give a crocodile, uh, uh, if I had breast, I would even feed a crocodile breastfeed. So cross I was. And the guy said, ah, don't, don't get your milk sour over that. But it, it works on you because, you know, you, you, you're walking in there without any, you know, animosity. You're just, you're just coming there to sit down, have a chat with your mate or your friend or girlfriend or whoever, and then drink a pint, pay, your, pay your the man and walk out. And, and, and that was strange for me. That was, that really got me going between, the, uh, that really hit me between the eyes. That's Neville Walter-Brown telling Colm O'Mungoin on this afternoon's Liveline about his experience of racism in Dublin recently. Finally, on this edition of Playback Daily, the three-letter acronym that no sports person ever wants their physio to utter, the ACL. 
Morris Nelligan, Director of Orthopaedic Surgery in the Beacon Hospital Dublin, with a special interest in sports science, spoke to Claire Byrne this morning about the anterior cruciate ligament and why an injury to it can be potentially career-ending. So the ACL is an important ligament that sits in the centre of your knee. That's uh, very important for controlling stability of the knee, particularly in rotational type of activity. So for walking and even running, it's not necessary. But as soon as you get involved in any athletic activity that involves pivoting or cutting type of manoeuvres, then uh, if your ACL is not intact, you will develop instability or a feeling that your knee is unstable. Okay, and it can be a partial or total tear, can't it? Yes, it can be, but, uh, and that, you know, your MRI scan, which is a sort of workhorse investigation of this, will, will, will give you a lot of guidance on that. But we'd, we'd more listen to a patient's symptoms than anything else. So if they're complaining of, of uh, instability with certain types of activity, well, then, um, then you might be looking more at, 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 at a sort of treatment plan. And it's very difficult to treat, is it? Well, it, it's actually, uh, it depends. Sometimes, um, you know, we're very much assisted by our physiotherapy colleagues here, both in diagnosis and management. Some patients that don't do a lot of pivoting activities and may have injured their knee um, in, in an activity they do sporadically or in an, in an accident, they may not require surgery at all. And physiotherapy, strengthening up the muscles around the knee and some training can be very assistive with that. However, if you're quite active and uh, playing uh, contact type sports or indeed have instability with activities, activities of daily living, you really want to uh, have a surgical reconstruction of that ligament, which is in the main very successful. But you said reconstruction there, so it's not a repair, is it? No, reconstruction has been the mainstay of treatment uh, if you decide for a surgical option. Uh, Repair has been tried many, many times over the years because obviously that would be an attractive thing to do, that you don't have to take any tissue from somewhere else to repair it or or to reconstruct it or to to, to cure it, in other words. But um, uh, repair has has patchy in terms of, of results. And I think whilst it may become uh, more prevalent in the future, especially in younger patients, uh, reconstruction is the gold standard. And as it stands, are you treating younger patients and older patients differently? Um, Well, very young patients, you know, when we do see patients presenting at 12 and 13 years of age, um, it's, it's almost mandatory to repair those patients if they have instability because they may damage their knee if you leave it alone and you can't stop them doing things kids climb trees and they play uh, football with their mates no matter what you tell them so those patients you really do want to reconstruct them to prevent any damage to the actual surface of the knee or the the delicate cartilages that sit between the knee because if they get damaged they can have long-term consequences in terms of developing arthritis at a young age which can be hard to manage Older patients, you can be a little bit more nuanced depending on their activity level. Now, I mentioned that it is more common in women than men, and there's a, a number of female footballers who've torn their ACLs in the recent weeks and months. High profile, of course, because we're in the lead up to the World Cup. So can you explain why it is more prevalent in women? OK, well, it, it's, it's definitely uh, slightly more prevalent in women than men, but a lot more men would, you know, have, have tend to present in the past because they're, they're you know, historically uh, people, men have played much more in the in, in contact sports, but now it's, it's much more common and it's fantastic to see, you know, women's rugby, women's soccer, and the profile is really, really picking up there. 
And, uh, you know, I believe the FA Cup final in England, over 80,000 people will watch that live. Um, you know, Ireland is getting ramped up to see, hopefully, a successful campaign in the World Cup. So, um, however, you know, with women, there are dif- differences in their anatomy. They have different knee geometry. There's a wider pelvis. They tend to walk with more tiny little bit more knock knee at the knee and they would decrease width and length of the anterior cruciate ligament and less muscle bulk around the knee and that can lead to um, uh, increased risk of damage and other factors hormonal variations at certain times of the cycle the ACL may be a little bit more stretchy and can lead to uh, can lead to some damage um, in in that but there's not great evidence on that and other risks are that you know, women, even the professional athletes, tend to have what we would term a younger or lower training age than their male counterparts. So, you know, if, if, if a boy is recognized to be a very good player, he's been probably coached and being in intensive training since he was six or seven. And maybe the, 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 uh, the female athlete hasn't had that opportunity to develop um, at the same speed. And I think as, we, as, as, as men's and women's sports come closer aligned, which is, which is happening, that may become less of an issue. OK, so that uh, may change in time. And if it happens to you once and you go through all of the physiotherapy and perhaps a surgical um, reconstruction, is it more likely to happen to you again, particularly if you go back into sport? Well, that's a great question. Um, so the, the sort of standard answer I would give there is about 10% of patients will have a recurrence of their injury. And that those same patients are more at risk of having, unfortunately, an injury in the opposite knee. Again, the younger you are, you tend to have a longer sporting career in front of you. Unfortunately, the younger you are, the more likely it is to recur. And the older you are, the less likely it is to recur. Morris Nelligan, Director of Orthopaedic Surgery in the Beacon Hospital, talking to Claire Byrne this morning about the anterior cruciate ligament and the way it might look at you. And that's all I have for you on this edition of Playback Daily. The programme was compiled, written and edited by me, Neil O'Shirodon. Don't forget you can listen back to all the programmes featured on Playback Daily on the RTE radio player. And there'll be another episode of Playback Daily at the same time tomorrow. Probably. Until the next time, thank you for listening and good luck.